You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is To Stir With Love, a criminal justice reform podcast. Um, I have the source this week once again to be joined by Rav Benjamin Scheiman, who is the executive director of Hinda Helps, a uh, the uh, an institute that is dedicated on, uh, like I said last week, from Aleph to Tov, from A to Z, helping uh, the incarcerated. And uh, Rabbi Scheiman has, in these couple of weeks that has been talking to us, has enlightened and illuminated us on many many issues that we had a sense of, but the depth of understanding that you brought to it has been very, very appreciated. Rabbi Shaiman, I know there was a topic that's very close to your heart. It's something that we've spoken about in this podcast, I and Rabbi Kolakowski, who's going to be joining us soon, which is uh, the idea of re-entry. Um, what, are, what, what is our community doing um, in, its, in its approach to criminal justice uh, to create a path of re-entry that is logical, that is ethical, that is compassionate, uh, that allows human beings to get uh, back into the society that they were locked out of for so long. Um, and I know you have very, some very strong feelings about it. Um, I just want to, in, in a way, um, mention that in preparation for this podcast, which was dedicated for the, the issues and problems of re-entry, I probably made more phone calls, uh, went through more emails and, and attempts than almost any uh, podcast that I've done for the last two years. And other than the people that are going to be here with us tonight, unfortunately, uh, all my digging, uh, I came up empty-handed. Uh, I spoke to I, I, I spoke to rabbis of prestigious congregations. I sent emails to rabbis of congregations that I know have dealt with this this issue. Um, I've sp- I spoke to a number of shul presidents. I even sent a, a letter uh, to a dean of a law school and uh, an Orthodox uh, Jewish man who was also a professor. And none of them really, Rabbi Scheiman, wanted to come on and 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 discuss this. Um, and uh, to me, that vacuum <laughs> speaks louder than words. The fact that although we know that this is uh, a, a a problem that needs to be grappled with, there needs to be direction. Um, people are afraid of this, and I think the what this uh, there's a, a taboo associated with it. I think you'll agree. Um, and 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 let me just make this point that um, I think what they are worried about is, on one hand. Um, their jobs. <laughs> They're worried about the fact that the community that they represent um, um, is, 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 does not want uh, ex-convicts, as they're called, people coming back from prison, uh, to be so welcomed. Uh, they're worried, especially, and let's, let's, let's get it out of the way, a number of, of the felons that are being released and are coming back there's, there's definitely, uh, I don't know the percentage, you probably know those numbers better than me, but there's a, a, a decent percentage of those that, that were incarcerated for sexual crimes, for crimes having to do with pedophilia, crimes doing with stalking girls and, or, or, or young boys. Um, 
And because of that, or it might have been, as your wife mentioned last week, in somewhat of a discreet fashion, uh, they might have been arrested for um, downloading um, things on the internet, child, child pornography or other things like that. And because of that, um, there is a, 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 as we say in Hebrew, histaigut, there is a, a, a sense of staying away from that. There is a sense of avoiding and 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 because of that, I think many uh, of these uh, the community leaders, uh, even if they would be able to hear on an intellectual and emotional level the importance of your message, they are it, it's being drowned out, Rabbi, by by the worry and the fear that they might be allowing a predator, someone that could harm their children, and there's such a an emotional resonance to that that the rabbis and presidents and other people are also themselves really not only fearful in their own synagogue, but they're even fearful of making any public statements to me or to others about what should be the approach that a shul should have. So um, I, I know that there are, of course, many other sorts of felons, but I think, unfortunately, the stamp of 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 that that purian stamp, I think, gets impressed on all of them. Rabbi, um, uh, I know that you have a, a a response to this, right? So please go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, absolutely, I have a response to it. Uh, I, as we always, uh, I like to do is start off with the Torah perspective. We look to Torah uh, for what we are supposed to do, and the Torah. Um, Anytime somebody does something, there is punishment meted out towards the individual. And in the Torah um, way, whether the person, whatever type of punishment they receive from the Bezdin, as soon as they receive their punishment, they are to be considered no more a Russia, but a Chaver again, but to be considered somebody who is uh, equal with us again. Uh, they've, 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 they got their punishment. And the Torah does not believe it. It believes in tshuva. It believes in a person being able to move on with their life. And this whole notion in society where uh, people are, after they are punished, and after they go through treatments, and after they go through all types of conditions, to still come out and to be punished perpetually for the rest of their life and never have this stain leave them is very untorah-like. It's not even, it, it, I wouldn't say, I would even um, broaden that and say, it's not humanitarian. It's not even proper. Uh, it's not being menschlich, even according to, uh, not according to Torah law, but how could you punish a person, make them serve the time? You, they, the, uh, the expression is, you do the crime, you do the time. If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. Well, if you did the crime and you did the time, that should be the end of it. But, but, but Rabbi, I, I think that uh, you're well aware, and I know that you could perhaps um, uh, shift the parameters a little bit, but I think there's a perception and that, that this, let's talk about for sex offenders or people who are, on the, who, are, who are registered sex offenders, who even though they are released, there is a perception that these people um, have an illness that will rear its head again. And there's a sense that there's the, recidiv the recidivism rate for that, of them once again 
uh, engaging in these criminal horrible acts will occur. And I think that's part of the fear. How do you allay that fear? Yes, they did the time. They're trying to do tshuva. They feel terrible about themselves. But I don't know if you're familiar, of course, with the, you know, I'm sure you haven't seen it, but Fritz Lang's M, uh, where Peter Lorre, an, a Jewish actor, played such a pedophilic murderer. And he says at the end of that film, you don't know what drives me. It's I can't control it. What about is, is that just a, a, a cinematic aberration? Because that's what people are afraid of, right? Okay, so let, me, let me address that. I think you mentioned it before. Uh, people in this particular field are driven by fear and emotion, not by science, not by facts, and not by um, logic. Uh, the criminal um, people, the criminal justice people, and the treatment um, centers that deal with. Uh, these types of offenders uh, assess them, they treat them, and yes, they they go that before they could be put on a level where they could get released or they could be deemed uh, safe out of treatment. They go through special tests and they are assessed, and many of them are assessed to be no more dangerous than the average American male on the street. Uh, so, uh, and the recidivism rate from all offenders. Sex offenders are the lowest, if not, if they may either the lowest or the second lowest. Uh, they do not recommit. That's very rare. And these laws that are made are uh, and rules that are made are actually not keeping communities safe. And I'll tell you why, because the people that are on the registry are identified. They have restrictions. Everybody knows who they are. Most sex offenders are not committed by strangers. Most Sex offenses are committed by uncles and fathers and brothers and people that are familiar. So keep, keeping these people that have been identified and did their time and have all these restrictions, keeping them farther away isn't protecting anybody from the real offenders, which are the people that are right in, the, in their own family. So the laws really make no sense. They don't make anybody safer. And it just perpetuates and punishes these individuals on and on and on again, the things that they've been fixed for and uh, that they are no longer going to do. And statistically, it's shown they have a very, very low recidivism rate. It does so, not have- You know, you, so Rabbi, let me again, you know, I, I, I wanted to have a rabbi, I wanted to have a president, I wanted to have a, 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 a Hadassah PTA member, I wanted to have somebody, but I'm going to pretend I'm them and I'm going to because this is what I think I'm hearing from them, although they didn't want to put it on the table. But Rabbi, even if you're right, the recidivism rate is very low, but how can we even take the risk if it's a 2% risk or a 3% risk? It's our children. How can we take that risk? Isn't that, it, that's a, it's, it's a very, especially when we talk about the Beit Knesset, we talk about the shul, we talk about the community center, where, we, where it is a combination of men and women and young children. Do you think that your your message is going to get through when the girl, when the woman is holding her child and says, I don't care if you tell me, he probably won't. And remember what you just said, Rabbi, you said that that he won't do it because he knows he's been punished already, but he wants to do it possibly. And since he wants to do it, isn't it so isn't it difficult for people to have members in their shul when when they look at them, what they're seeing is. Mm, I'm sure he's probably fantasizing or has some sort of desire. 
is a is is it realistic to ask for them to 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 sort of wipe their their conscience about that, especially yeah, well, if they have. Yeah, no, number one, I did not say that. I said that people before they, they go through assessments and they go through special tests after they've been treated. And in these tests, they are deemed to be no more um, uh, risk than the average American male. So there's the risk that we might as well not have men go to shul <laughs> if you're worried about risks, because every ma- American male is, is a risk to some extent. Or, uh, now, or, 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 or ha- not have women and children go to shul. <laughs> Just have all men minyanim without any boys. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is we're not at that point right now because I'll tell you why. Because A, their parole agent won't let them go to the shul, right, uh, under, certain t- uh, under certain conditions. They can't even go there. They can't go to a park. They can't. There's places they cannot go. And on top of that, the shuls will not allow them in. So we're not talking about, right now, we're not even at that point. We're not even at that point. It's to such a level where I have men, I speak with all the time, they have no place to go. They have no place to go for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. They have no place to go to hear the Megillah. Somebody has to go to them. Right now, we're not at that point. There's such an emotional uh, feeling and such fear that, you know, this is... uh, so on, on, the, on those, those people, um, at least what we have set up here in Illinois is we do special Megillah readings. We'll get a few of them together um, or we'll find, you know, sometimes I'm having in two weeks, I'm having a person, one of these offenders come to my house and come to shul, but it's on a Friday night. It's, there's barely going to be anybody there and he's going to be chaperoned, even though there is no there's no reason to fear for this person. He's been assessed. He's not a person at risk at this point. But to allay anybody's fears, it's going to be done in a very targeted and limited way. But on the overall community, nobody's going to let uh, registered sex offenders into Shoal, into Mignonim at this point. It's not happening. So it's not, I don't think it's it's too raw a subject and too a hot, but it's too much of a hot button uh, issue to even bring up. We, uh, I'd like to talk about just, some shuls won't even let other offenders in or their families. The families right. get fun okay. and somebody has a felony. They're not exactly looked kindly on when they come oh, to shul. Okay. Rabbi, I appreciate it. I know that you have actually, we actually have a very courageous person who's here with us as well is going to talk, tell his story. Someone who actually did serve time um, as, a, as what we call a white collar crime. And I'm going to let uh, David tell his story in a, in a couple of minutes. Just want to put a little nakuda on this. And, I, and Yitzchak, thank you for, for entering. We were uh, waiting for you to arrive and uh, you definitely made yourself known. Just want to respond one thing to the rabbi and get Yitzchak's take on it. Um, the uh, as you say, it's raw, but I have talked to a number of show presidents who dealt with this issue. And one show president told me the following, that if the offender was someone who was from the community and someone who had had a place in the community before, then uh, they came up with rules, how that person could come to show, leave before the kiddish started, sit in a certain spot, um, with awareness that every other people other people had, but he definitely still had his place in shul. And I knew this person actually pretty well. However, an offender who comes into a city 
because he doesn't want to go back to his old city because of embarrassment. And he tries to find some new city. Those are the ones that have the issues that you're talking about that no shul wants them once they find out about them or they shut them off to you mentioned i think a couple of days ago to me on a private conversation to a nursing home minion or as we have here uh, in the city that i'm talking to you from in elizabeth there are these two shuls that are barely holding on and they don't have uh youthful uh, members going there, uh, but they're still sort of like still stragglers there. So they send, they say that's where uh, these uh, offenders could go um, without necessarily, Rabbi, thinking about what it was that they did. In other words, there's the brand sex offender, but it doesn't necessarily get more sophisticated than that without saying what what the actions were. Yitzhak, before we move on to David and his story, did you want to respond to something to something the rabbi was saying? You speaking to me? Yes, Yitzhak, yes, you. I, 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 well, I, I, it is actually true what, what he said, that despite the, uh, the, you know, the way that people look at it, that the the recidivism rate for, for sex offenders is lower than, than other offenders, on one hand, but the other hand is that because there's so much work put into, you know, them before you put them, send them back to the, the street. We, you know, because I work both as a chaplain in a in a in a prison, but also in a mental hospital. And there's certain people who are never returned back to the street if they are unable. You know, they they can finish maybe a 20 year sentence, and then spend the rest of their lives in a mental hospital because they're unable to be be released back into the into the community and then there are other people who maybe that is part of their uh return to the community i know uh my wife is here also and she does a lot of work with people who are on parole parole means a lot to me personally because my zeta was a parole officer and we did have a re-entry fair in the pennsylvania doc yesterday and and uh, you know it, it really opens our eyes listening to people from the parole world that you know it's not just the way you know you look at it of you know somebody who just keeps an eye on someone when they left jail but they're really working to help someone be rehabilitated and and return millie you want to say something about the about the hospital and 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 parole and uh I just really fast wanted to talk about <clears throat> correction law um in New York State, the fact that there is a, the correctional law article 16, section 404, which is very famous in our world, that mentally people deemed mentally ill, quote unquote, um, who are on parole can be interred in a state mental health facility indefinitely until basically they find that they're, they can be released. And this is a very uh, controversial issue. It's one that, you know, you have to assess. Sometimes it's putting, um, if you're mentally ill, you're 75% more likely to be the victim of a violent crime. So you have offenders, uh, former offenders and, and victims of, of, of some of these crimes living side by side with each other. And it can be and has gotten very dangerous. And um, it's a pretty contentious law. Sometimes our our parolees that are in the hospital are lied to and they're told oh if you do this you're going to get out sooner you're going to get out sooner and then they're just stuck 
And it's, so, so um, Chava, I think what you're saying is, is that if I'm understanding correctly, is that sometimes these offenders that we're referring to who have mental health issues end up after the incarceration being put into a, uh, a mental health facility where they actually become victims possibly or mm-hmm. of, 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 right? With yeah. other, meaning that the the regular mentally ill who are not necessarily criminally mentally ill, they're not there because of a, a, a felony offense. Maybe they committed some misdemeanor that I see opened up the eyes, and those people can become the victims of the criminals who are maybe not as mentally ill. It happens all the time. But, but the reason I brought it up here is that as far as the question of returning into the community people are not returned into the community they're not able even like like the rabbi mentioned as far as the parole officer is not going to allow them to go to the synagogue not allow them to go to their church the mosque or wherever else uh they're not allowed to be you know domiciled within a certain area where there's a playground or so forth if they are still a risk to the society once they are when they're not going to have the opportunity to go to shul in a place where I, there is that crowd until they're ready to do so, meaning that the the reentry, uh, you know, parole and and probation officers are doing their jobs for the most part. Sometimes overzealously. We're that, talking specifically about sex offenders. Well, and we're talking, well, we're going we're we're going to move on to the I think the next aspect of it. But I hear what you're saying. I think you're basically agreeing with Rabbi Scheiman, and you're saying that um, that we need to trust our the the prison officials, the psychiatrists, the parole officers that they have uh, done thorough uh, examinations, testing, and they understand the person they've been dealing with. And, and, and society at large needs to, to, to begin to trust them that we wouldn't let them back into a community unless we felt they were not a threat, which is, and that's what Rabbi Scheinman is saying, it's still unfortunate that the community has not been educated in that way at all. I think that's pretty much what we're, what we're referring to. And, 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 and the, the parole is so overzealous to that point where they're gonna send people even who are really not that dangerous perhaps at this point and 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 employment. you know it's certainly certainly in new york state you're saying that are, some of them are even being shunted into hospitals where that's basically a, a tinderbox many, uh, many of them and 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 i you know i've dealt with people who were probably and and who have since been nifter they've passed away whatever jewish people and so forth who i knew were never going to be able to be rehabilitated and that was the only hope that they had but uh, that, there are less and less of those that we're experiencing, at least I in think. New York State, and many people who really are not that seriously mentally ill who are being housed in the in mental hospitals, in state hospitals, and it's to the detriment of the people who really need well, to be there. Okay. You know, I, so, I hear, but, but, so this seems to be... A, it's less of a problem for the community at large. I see. This seems to be a, another another independent issue, which is an outgrowth of what we've been talking about. Rabbi Scheiman, I do want to introduce David. I know, thank you for for, for, right. stay, for staying so so uh, um, uh, patiently. Rabbi Scheiman, you're not getting this, what you're hearing in New York. That's not happening in Illinois, right? Shunting people into mental hospitals? Well, number one... Uh, it, it does happen, you know, people that can't, uh, they, there's, all, there's also in Illinois a special civilly committed 
uh, section where after the people serve their time, they do not allow, allow them to leave and go back to the community. They continue, they're continuing indefinitely in treatment until they feel that they're safe enough. So there's a, that would be the same type of system in, in Illinois. Before I introduce David, I'd like to tell a story. One story just to illustrate the how far to the, how off the rails this uh, hysteria and uh, fear and emotion goes. I have a man who committed a crime, uh, a sex offense. He, it was, it was a low level. He did his time. It was a one-time offense. It was, it was not uh, a, a, a very, very uh, high level case. Um, he got back into the community. He actually, I worked with Rabunim. He was able to get to Mignonim. He got remarried. Um, I did his chuppah. Uh, he was going to shul every week. And one week he, he needed to go, uh, he found out he needed a hip replacement. He went to his doctor. They did the hip replacement. He went to a nursing home to get rehab. He was supposed to be there two or three weeks. And he was into the first week of it. He would dive in every morning and, 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 one day, a social worker came in and said, sir, you're going to have to leave immediately. The nursing home owners, they found out you have a sex offense. The lawyer said you're a liability. We're sorry, you have to leave. He said, well, how am I supposed to leave? Uh, I came in a Medicare uh, car. Um, I don't even have anybody at home. He said, sorry. Uh, you know, and he said to the young woman, I'm sorry they put you up to this. You're, you're a young social worker. Why are they doing this to you? She came back. She apologized later. She got him a Medicare, but he did have to go home. He had needed to leave. He needed to leave. It didn't even make any sense. And he called me the next Friday. He was back in the hospital. Because he got back and forth, the hip surgery got ruined. He was now had to be sent back to the hospital for a, another hip replacement. That's just an example of this man was no danger to anybody. And just the fact that he still had this on his, he's still registered. And he's in a nursing home and there was nobody who was going to harm him. He was in rehab, but the owners were hysterical about it. What's going to happen? And so, you know, I just wanted to give that as an example. No, no. Cool, but society has to cool down on this issue a little and, and, and let people that are assessed not to be dangerous anymore to uh, give people a little bit of, of COVID, uh, a little bit of humanity. And uh, I, I have uh, a, uh, a client of ours of Hinda who I actually did not visit in prison. He had other uh, rabbis visit him in different states he was in, and he's been out for quite a while now. Um, uh, David is, is uh, I, I don't know if he will get his license back at some time, but he was a licensed attorney. And while he was in the many years, he helped people legally inside. He helped many, many, many people inside while he was doing time. And now he had the challenge of re-entry, getting back with his family, getting back a job, getting back into society. And so uh, David agreed to join us and talk from a perspective of somebody who has been in for a while and has, re has been out, was it less than two years, David? Uh, actually, 26 months now. 26 months. Yes. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Rommel. Thank you, uh, Rabbis uh, uh, Scheinman and uh, Kolakowski. And I'm very, very pleased to be with you this evening and be able to uh, speak to my story. I uh, would like to digress, if I respectfully could, after telling my story, just comment on some of the discussion that we've had thus far, because I think I have some interesting points to add from my personal experience, um, having kind of lived through uh, over a decade in several federal prisons, assisting 
in large part, sex offenders. Um, uh, as Rabbi Scheinman noted, uh, I spent a great deal of my time for over a decade in prison, uh, assisting both uh, legally and administratively inmates. And as you may imagine, there are many what they call jailhouse lawyers who are very, um, uh, very resistant to uh, speaking to or assisting sex offenders. But I was always a person who felt uh, that I was not going to be judgmental of anyone. I was no better than anyone else. And everyone, I came from the school of thought that everyone needs assistance and representation if they do need that assistance. And so I didn't make a judgment as to whose crime might be better than the next in terms of uh, my willingness to spend time to be of assistance. But having said that, I'll, I'll revisit in a few moments those points in greater detail, but I'll begin with my story. So, um, I was raised in the uh, Skokie, Morton Grove, the Skokie area, basically. Went to high school in Skokie, Illinois, uh, very Jewish uh, 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 community, as I think many of you know at that time anyway, because I'm nearing 60 years old now. So in the, in the 70s and 80s, it was a very uh, high population of a Jewish community there. It's changed since. Uh, I'm still living in that area now, uh, following my release. Uh, in, uh, I went to law school and practiced law privately, was a member of the federal trial bar in the city of Chicago from 1986 to 1997 in private practice, uh, primarily doing uh, complex business bankruptcies and commercial litigation for a variety of firms and my own law firm. In 1997, I took on a position as the CEO and chairman of the board of a early stage biodiagnostic company that was dedicated to developing rapid point of care diagnostic tests for a variety of diseases. And uh, ultimately, we raised $55 million. Uh, I was involved primarily in the fundraising effort. Uh, and I was involved uh, having made some very poor judgments with respect to the vi uh, violating what they call Securities and Exchange Commission rules that pertain to the raising of the money. And ultimately, that led to a uh, lawsuit, a civil lawsuit in 2006 by the Securities and Exchange Commission against the company, myself and uh, several others in the company. And ultimately, that case morphed into a criminal investigation, which then led in 2007 to my indictment for wire and mail fraud, where I ultimately pled guilty and was sentenced to 14 years in prison on that guilty plea. Uh, I served almost 11 years in three federal prisons, and during that time, assisted over a thousand inmates. I mean, I actually kept count to a certain extent because uh, the average jailhouse lawyer will work with maybe 10 customers, if you call them customers or inmates, a year to assist them. But I was doing, I, I, I anyone who needed help, I would help. And it would, could be a simple letter, it could be, uh, an administrative remedy, which some of you may be familiar with, is more of an internal matter at the prisons or, you know, all the way up to, uh, you know, filings of bankruptcies, divorces, and of course, criminal appeals, which I became pretty proficient at, having done over 200 of those during the almost 11 years I was in prison. Needless to say, uh, the success rate on those type of matters, the criminal appeals is very, very low. So my impetus was to, to, provide any level of realistic hope that the inmate might have. But unlike many of my competitors, if you will, who are charging thousands of dollars, my you know famous line in prison was, you know, if you could just offer me a cup of coffee, I'm happy to help you. In other words, it wasn't about the money for me. It was about trying to be helpful, 
uh, but also being realistic, not to provide a false hope that I saw so often being per perpetrated by many of these other jailhouse lawyers who had no legal background whatsoever, and many didn't even go to high school and held themselves out as legal experts. Um, hey, David, can I interrupt you just for a second? I mean, the story sure. is definitely compelling, I, but I think our listeners might want to know, um, you were sentenced to 14 years and you served 11. W was that normal considering the the level of crime that you were charged with? To to not to to actually serve like almost seventy five or eighty percent of what your sentence was. It sounds like you were not. Uh, it sounds like you were pretty much a model prisoner. How come how come parole wasn't offered to you earlier? Well, parole is not part of the federal system. My I crime see. my crime could very well have been a state crime. In fact, the state of Illinois was investigating our company at the time. But by and large, particularly these days, these state investigations give way to the feds who take on the investigation, particularly in what they consider to be, you know, quote unquote, high profile fraud case. And this was a fairly high profile white collar case, particularly because there were so many of the investors who were domiciled in the state of Illinois. And that's where I was living. That's where the company was, you know, had its principal place of business. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on the case itself. I certainly could do that. That might be better no. served for another day. But uh, suffice it to say that uh, it was a very severe sentence. Uh, particularly because there was no allegation of theft. There was no theft. It was all about uh, what they you know, called misrepresentations, exaggerations, and lies. Of course, they focus on the word lies with respect to representations to investors on the expected return on their investment and going public, these type of issues. Ultimately, I pled guilty and uh, did serve that time. I know the focus for this evening is on reentry. I want to speak uh, and focus specifically on that issue because I think we're woefully failing in this country uh, with respect to reentry. Uh, there has to be, in my view, a seismic shift, which is going to take a, is a gargantuan task, frankly, to really make a major change in this issue. My view is, is there has to actually be um, the formation of uh, physical offices attached virtually to, if not to every, but virtually to every halfway house in this country, dedicated to re-entry assistance. But it's far more than that. There has to be education and there has to be uh, a lot of work towards compassion for the newly released to give them a, a second chance and to give them a meaningful second chance at employment in particular. Uh, I can tell you that Many of my white collar and most of the people I know are white collar offenders, although I did, as I indicated earlier, greatly assist the sex offenders in prison. Uh, but I can tell you that from my, from my experience, it's equally daunting for a white collar offender to get any type of reasonable employment as it is a sex offender these days, mainly because, number one, those individuals are not trusted. They're seen as thieves and not to be trusted. And secondly, because the skill set of the average white collar offender who has a you know, significant either business acumen or law degree, that type of thing, they're not seen as having transferable skills into the typical type of job that's going to be suited for the newly released, which more times than not is more of a blue collar type of job. Um, in prisons, commonly now, people are being trained to be welders and electricians and these type of uh, positions which you can earn a reasonable living, of course. But the, the business offender, the white collar offender, their skill set is not generally suited or they're not interested in that type of hands-on labor type work. 
And many of those offenders like me come out at, you know, in their fifties and sixties, and they're not looking to, you know, get their hands dirty in that way as a new career. So as a practical matter, I, I, I know I know a lot of plumbers who would disagree with you. They would tell you they're they're living it up even in their fifties and sixties, you know, knowing how to get that done. But but David, what problems? You're, you're you're I know you're leading up to it, but you're it's clear that you're speaking from your own experience when you came out. You 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 saw a lot of doors closed in your face. Well, I was very fortunate, as I think I mentioned to you in in a lead up to tonight's meeting, that I had. Um, a couple of uh, brothers from Israel who began a company um, 31 years ago. Uh, it's kind of a shocking part of the story here. But when I was literally under indictment and still had my law license at that time, hadn't pled guilty and, and forfeited my license, which was part of the plea, um, the company hired me knowing I was under indictment and was likely to go to prison for a considerable period of time as its general counsel, because they were going through a very difficult uh, litigation at the time, as well as its uh, director of new business development to head up the uh, uh, marketing and uh, presentation of a new emergency notification system to colleges throughout the Midwest, primarily in my case. And uh, it was really shocking that number one, the CEO agreed to hire me, but even more shocking, frankly, that he told me when I was leaving for prison that he would likely rehire me when I returned. And that's exactly what happened when I returned almost 11 years later. And today I'm the company's uh, regional sales manager throughout the Midwest. So, um, so, so it's that type of trust, understanding, intelligence, and savvy that we want to bottle, right? Those is, that Israeli uh, entrepreneur, that uh, owner of that company, that's the attitude that Rabbi Shimon and, and, and all of us have been saying needs to be expanded, right? He, that was a person who saw you as an individual, didn't discount the crime that you committed, but realized your potential as a, as a person and what you, could, what you can contribute and your talents and strengths, right? Yes, but we cannot underestimate the pressure he was under, particularly from some of the employees who Googled me at the time when I was released and came to him and said, you must be insane looking to bring back a guy like this with this type of crime and this kind of background. And he was a very brave man in my view, because in getting me, he could have lost a number of employees, key employees who were questioning him at the time. One of whom ultimately left, uh, not only because of that, but it was mutual. I mean, the company wanted to have him leave as well. But the point is, is that it's a real challenge for an employer, and I think we can't discount this, to consider the morale of, particularly in a small company setting, the morale of other employees when you're bringing in a person with my type of background. Right, right. Similar to when I was trying to role play a little bit the rabbi or president of the shul who says, you know, I like this guy. I think he's all right. But every but the people around us, uh, in other words, the rabbi could say, I'm not going to be an effective minister to my community because they can't understand Rabbi Shimon's message. They can't understand this idea. And because of that, I, I, I'm going to lose their morale. And it sounds like your your employer uh, said, you know, I don't care. I think that David is is a good enough person. And I think he can help us, right? Is that sort of- Well, and I think in fairness too, and I think it's very important to point out that before I left, I added some significant value with some sig very significant sales that I made and frankly, I have to say, had I not had those successes, the risk reward simply might not have been here there for him later. 
I mean, I have to be very realistic. Right. I, had some... I understand you had a track record with that person. David, can you talk a little bit about friends? You seem to be a gregarious, eloquent person. Did you find that after your release, your old friends were not interested in taking your calls anymore or emails? Largely, yes. And of course, it's, as we all know, the lesson that many of us learn in these type of difficult situations is the old saying, who our friends truly are. I, as it turns out, I had many acquaintances and many what we might call fair weather friends, uh, but the closest friends of mine stuck with me. And what I came to learn is, from at least my perspective, having two or three very dear and close friends is much more important than having 20 acquaintances or fair weather fan, uh, friends. And interestingly, as I've mentioned to Rabbi Scheiman on many occasions, because I was so, I guess I could use the word crazed during all those years as a CEO raising having to raise a million dollars a month to even keep the company afloat for 90 months. Um, my connection to my two daughters was very, very weak. And in, and in a very interesting way, my relationship with my two daughters grew substantially when I was in prison and, you know, to the present time. So uh, that was in some ways. Able, you know, Yitzchak, remember we talked about uh, uh, um, children visiting. Yitzchak, remember we talked about children visiting uh, uh, incarcerated persons. David, your daughters were able to visit you in the federal prison that you were in? They visit me on average three times a year for those almost 11 years. Um, it was challenging until I got to Milan, Michigan, which was a drive away. They had a fly. But I have a mother, an elderly mother in very good health, thank God, who supported who came with them and took them during the earlier years. And then when they became, uh, you know, when they became 18 to 20 years old, they were able to come on their own, you know, so in that age range. But, but in but, earlier years, they had to be accompanied, of course. You know, again, you know, I, I try to be dis somewhat dispassionate as the moderator here, but it just rips my kishkas out to say you can only see your children three times a year. That's that's that. But we spoke. We also spoke three times. I spoke to each of them three times a week for almost the entire 11 years. You know, mm -hmm. so we were speaking a lot. You have to remember, too, in the federal system, there wasn't even email until the second year I was in prison. So for the and it was very difficult to get the phones at some of these prisons, as you may all know. So we were actually doing letter writing largely for the first year, year and a half. And that was very challenging because letters, of course, are very different than, you know, phone calls and even email. So. No, it was it was very difficult. I lost my father also. I mean, I lost my freedom, my family and my uh, father, who I was very, very close to my my first year. And then I was diagnosed with a terminal cancer case of uh, prostate cancer, initially terminal. Thank God that uh, I received a reprieve from God to give me a second chance. Um, David, is, is, I, I know when we talked about this a couple yeah. uh, a couple of days ago. And you mentioned to me that probably had you still been on the outside, you probably wouldn't have gotten that diagnosis the way you did, right? No, it was really shocking because I had been transferred to a prison where this particular position at the transferee prison, as a rule, did the PSA test on the person's 50th birthday, which is fairly young to be tested when you don't have symptoms, which I didn't have. And the, the test came back with a very heightened PSA. I had a biopsy almost immediately. And Initially, my diagnosis was an 88% chance that it had spread to my brain and bones. And so needless to say, that PET, that PET scan that followed two weeks later, shackled and handcuffed to a, uh, a gurney-like, you know, table, 
you know, was was a little nerve wracking to say the least. But uh, they moved out. you to you were moved to a regular hospital in order to. No, no, I actually had a choice. They gave me a choice of going to Butner, North Carolina, where they treat cancer patients. Yitzchak, that's some Yitzchak. You know about Butner, Yitzchak. We've spoken about that, right? I don't know if you talk, you're still here with us. Yeah, but okay, go ahead. Right. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I almost became the chaplain there. In Butner. We talked about that before. So but you could have, yeah. I chose to stay at Morgantown, West Virginia, because my view was I wanted to remain with, you know, largely with healthy people, stay in my routine. And then I was able to unescorted because I was at a camp at the time, a minimum security facility, go unescorted meaning an inmate would drive me daily to the hospital for 45 straight days for the radiation treatment. So uh, I had a very aggressive form of this cancer. Thank God today I'm 10 years in remission. So it's. Uh, so, uh, and, and I, I, would you say, David, that you almost give thanks to God that had you not been in prison and not been treated like a number where this guy's 50, he's like part of our cattle. We need to check him out. He's part of the brood. He's part of the brood. He's part of the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the the animals that we have here. You know what I mean? Had that not occurred, you might not be here today speaking with us. Very so, likely, very likely would have been the case because, it, as I say, it was a very aggressive cancer. I didn't have symptoms. This is a particular cancer that uh, typically is symptomless until it's too late. Uh, that's why these PSA tests are so important. In any event, I wanted to comment though earlier on. David, can you just answer just one more question before you you give those comments? Because I know this is something people might be interested in. Um, I'm not saying in your case, but in in white collar crime, like the type of uh, things that you were indicted for and were incarcerated for, um, normally, you know, we talked about sex offenders and what they do when they come out in the community. Uh, Is there the demand for restitution uh, to the people that might have been bilked? or, or um, you know, that lost money? Is that something that usually goes hand in hand with um, people that are, have been sentenced that they must try to make restitution? And even after they come out, there's, uh, there's a demand that they make restitution to those that they might've defrauded. I'm not saying that's what you did, but from what you know. No, that is absolutely the case. It's actually a statutory requirement in all wire, mail fraud and uh, security fraud cases that where investors lose money, there is a statutory con- uh, requirement for restitution. Um, typically, it's a percentage of your net or gross income, which I'm paying on a monthly basis right now, as are my co-defendants in the case. And uh, every similarly situated defendant that I've ever seen in that type of case has a similar situation. So yes, it's a 20-year requirement uh, from the date of release. The law changed 10 years ago. It used to be 10 years from the date of conviction. It is now 10 years, federally, it's now 10 years from the date of your release. So I'll be paying this until, in my case, I'm 77 years old. Uh-huh. Wow. So, and it's, and, it's and, a percentage and, of income. It's in my case, it's 15% of net income, which is generally a, either 10% of gross or 15% of net income is the standard uh, calculation. So assuming, you know, Rabbi Scheinman, assuming we can get jobs for, for these people who are there, they're, they're still going to be a, a good percentage of it's going to be siphoned off in many ways. So, um, so I think that, uh, but, you know, Yitzchak, what do you think? 15%, does that sound in line with what you know? 10, 15%, does that sound in line for state prisoners as well who are convicted on white collar crime? I don't know very many white collar criminals, to be honest. Okay, <laughs> but I, I, I know I know one 
I knew one at, at, at the federal prison where I worked and I really can't think of anybody who would really be considered a white collar criminal at, 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 in, in the state prison. Where David, I, I interrupt you though. You wanted to, you wanted well, to I wanted to digress for a moment. Rabbi Scheinman earlier commented on something very important. When we talk about the studies and I'm gonna walk back to the sex offender issue. There's such a misconception in our society today and it continues with respect to an overall um, categorization of sex offenders as pedophilia, pedophilia offenders. And that's simply not even close to what the statistics show are those who are incarcerated largely are, are convicted of uh, computer offenses, where the studies are very clear, actually, that in the case of these computer or um, depiction cases, if you will, and many of these depiction cases, by the way, I would add, involve oftentimes those that are viewing the depictions also being involved in marketing and selling depictions, almost making it a business Studies have consistently shown that the chance of, of those individuals ultimately touching a child is almost nil. Now, I, I would def most judges that I've encountered when I read the sentencing transcripts involving cases involving depictions, sex offense depiction situations, the judges almost always to a person seem to suggest that there is proof to the contrary or they're convinced to the contrary that these individuals are likely to reoffend by ultimately, you know, touching children. So in other Which words, even though the studies it, it, do not show. So even though, just, just to put it on the table so we understand what you're saying by depiction, people who are downloading child porn or selling or, or, or promoting child pornography aren't going to be the ones that are actually going to be out there in the, in the playgrounds luring little girls or boys into their vans and, and having their way with them. That's what that's you're correct. That's saying. Correct. Yitzchak, I know you have a, an opinion on this, Yitzchak, because we talked about it earlier. Yitzchak? Well, you know... It, the depiction and, and certainly production of of these materials with with actual children is is a, a horrific horrific crime, um, and anybody who is a, a customer of those of the, of those crimes um, is, is is has a chaluk in that crime. So I, I I really you know whether or not the person. And would actually uh, engage in that. Now, I know there has been a controversy about uh, depictions that w are produced through animation and things like that, and there, there are discussions. I know in Japan, particularly, that's a place where there's this question of, of using animated depictions in order to, I guess, uh, you know, uh, give in to whatever uh, right. lust sure. that the person has you know but if if something is being produced with a, a, an actual child there's uh, that that is a horrific horrific thing to do and 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 the people who are who are buying it the people who are who are downloading whatever is that they are there wouldn't they these things would not be produced if if there was not somebody um if there were not customers, but for the most part, my well, Yitzchak, you have to admit there's a big difference between the guy who's shooting these pornographic pornographic scenes and the person who uh, gets the clickbait and decides to download it. Right? There's a big difference between those two things. You're right. One of them is one of them is 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 creating the drug, and the other one is the is the addict to the drug. I, I don't think you can you, you could you could I, say I, that. I, I I agree with what you're saying, but but on the other hand, it's it's. You know, to create, 
to create a, a, a to, the 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 tushtel to to a narcotic is not really um, there. There's no victim in creating the narcotic per se as much as there's the victim in the person who's selling the narcotic. The no, person no, who's no, I agree. But in, ter- in but look, uh, in terms of the threat to the community and in terms of the horrific act that the person did, I think David's point was is that the, the, the threat to the community is that these things are being produced just by being produced in and of itself is is a threat to the community. There are children who are you know, who, who are abducted and, uh, and, and, and they're, and, and, you know, they're, vi- they're victimized every time that someone is watching this, uh, that, that was produced, you know, there's, there's a, a website, but there have been a lot of, uh, you know, for the most part, most of the more extreme examples of, of child pornography are in the dark web and not very easy to come by, but there was a petition out recently for, I guess it will be considered, uh, you know, uh, for for us, it's all it's all uh, us. Or, but I'm saying, it will be considered a more mainstream pornographic site. I think it's called Pornhub, where they uh, they were victims of uh, human trafficking and underage victims. We're talking maybe someone in their teens, and their and and depictions of their uh, of their abuse. Um, wound up on this would be considered "quote unquote" a more mainstream, accessible site. Not, you know, when when you said the clickbait, I I I might be naive in saying this, but I don't believe it's that easy to find the. You know, uh, uh, honestly, I don't know. I'm 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 just speculating yeah. based on what I'm saying, uh, this, stuff that I'm hearing. Type, yeah, this this type of a thing, it's something that's uh, apparently. Very, according to the reports that the, and the petitions that went out, uh, was was quite easy to uh, to find. And then the 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 victim who you know their her image was being used over and over again, and she would write to the website, ask it should be taken down. Maybe they would take it down, and someone else would put it back up again. And and it's a uh, quite a horrific thing. And 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 the victimization doesn't stop; it continues on. So it's. I, I, you know, there, there has to be. So, 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 I, so I think basically you're, you're saying you don't have the same sort of compassion, understanding day that David says I, needs I, to I, be I had. Would, I, what, what, and having worked in, in a federal prison that has a high, uh, high amount of sex offenders, I think where if if there is anybody who deserves compassion, it would be the people who are almost, uh, although legally it's not considered entrapment, but there is kind of the dateline. Uh, approach where you'll find people who probably never actually committed any offense and uh, and there's no actual victim and you'll have police officers or other maybe vigilantes like like the people from Dateline uh, making uh, you know posing in a chat room as as someone offering uh, something illegal and then when when the uh, when the, when the when the person the goes to meet the round when he goes to do the rendezvous, the police come and yeah. arrest him. Yeah. David, that, that, David, David, what's your response? David, what's your response to Yitzchok? Compassionate to I, I have a little different view. I actually think that there's uh, more compassion from my perspective because I've met many of these individuals, as I know the rabbi has as well in prison, who've committed both of these types of crimes, and I would say that the person who was caught on the Dateline type of scenario. That, that, is, that is the person that the judge is referring to in its sentencing that was most certainly going to be the toucher. 
he was just stopped right before he was able to do it. So there's really no evidentiary basis to say that, you know, he wasn't leading in that direction. But I've met a lot of, and I've read the cases very carefully in the transcripts of many of these downloaders. And remember too, many of these downloaders actually made it, and I'm not, and I I don't want to minimize it because as the rabbi said, it's all horrific stuff because there are always victims. The victims are are the children who are being exploited in these depictions. I mean, those are victims. And by the way, the law is changing in most states now where those victims are being able to be compensated, uh, even though they aren't even aware that they were victims. Once they're identified as victims, they're being compensated oftentimes in restitution now by the offender, in fe- federally anyway. But my point was going to be that by and large, in terms of uh, threat, threats to society on an ongoing basis, at least my personal view is, those that have touched or are about to touch but are stopped right before the moment of touching are more uh, dangerous, from my perspective anyway, than a person who's just looking at depictions. Because as we can think about for a moment, there are many people who could be looking at a variety of different types of depictions that might be viewed by society at large as being immoral. Or from our religious perspective, from I'm the Torah, pr- from the Torah, children. from the Torah perspective, you, right. you know, as Yitzchak said, and we've talked about it, uh, it's Usher Gummer, and you know, there's probably no, you know, watching a, you know, a, a, a an adult, a couple in copulation, uh, is as Usher Yitzchak as watching, uh, a, a, you know, a child couple in copulation. They both have the same level of Isser. I don't think one is worse than the other, halachically. So we would condemn that. Yet the first one is 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 condoned by society nobody's going to throw anybody in prison for watching soft porn with their wife and yet right and that's really the point i'm making i saw so many of those who were sentenced to seven to ten years for just looking at depictions that's a lot that's a lot of time and my point was the judge in my view oftentimes was making the leap and make in in leveling that level of sentence based upon the belief that they were one step away from touching where the Studies do not confirm that. Yeah, I, I just I want to push back a little bit. I'm sort of going to be in between you and and and, and Rabbi Yitzchuk on this, um, and and I'm familiar with a case from a city I used to live in where the police. You might uh, it was somewhat of a famous case where the police uh, created a fictional uh, teenage girl that this guy was going out to see, but the girl didn't really exist. I think that's what Yitzchuk was saying mm-hmm. that. So it, 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 you were saying, David, that he was about to touch. Well, there was no one to touch, right? This was this was a straw figure. This was a, a fantasy uh, figure that the you know the police probably because now again normally I think well, was, I'm, I'm speaking to intention, not not I'm right. Speaking but, to the intention. but I think what Yitzhak's talked about entrapment. I think what you were saying, Yitzhak, tell me if I'm misinterpreting. There is, by the way, let me make clear too. There's no such thing anymore in the federal system as entrapment as a practical matter. That, that's been completely erased over the last 10 or 20 years. That's why these crimes, my view is going to be, there's very soon going to be sex offender prisons because that's the crime of choice now. It's, uh, it's, and, essentially, I mean, I worked in, in Petersburg. That was really, I would say, a sex offender prison uh, at least the time when I was there over 10 years ago uh, because uh, sex offenders are, as you mentioned, they are mistreated. They're really seen as the bottom of the barrel as far as as inmates and so they have to generally be housed in a manner that's that's different than than other prisoners are housed that's correct so, 
So, uh, so because of that, uh, but I, I, I still, the reason why I'm saying that, uh, practically speaking, the difference is, uh, in general, from uh, stories that I know in, in the community in general, a lot of people who are repeat offenders and are very dangerous to, to, to the community, they tend to be able to, to hide themselves very well. They tend to be able to elude uh, conviction, whereas a lot of these guys who, uh, a, a, a great number of the guys in, in Petersburg were these types of cases where this was something that never crossed their mind before. And the manner in which they were, they were taken was that uh, you could uh, again there it, it it bordered on dishonesty there are overzealous prosecutors who just seek to be able to say look i uh, how many people i've prosecuted for this crime and how many people we took off the street when they know they're well aware that there are much more dangerous uh, men of, out there that that, I, I, that I think it was sort of what, catch. i think that's what rabbi shot I think. Ones, you know that's, I think that's what Rabbi Shimon was saying. It's, I'm sorry for interrupting you. I think what Rabbi Shimon was saying that there's so many, even in all communities, in terms of all men. In other words, you're saying they were able to they were able to catch the they were able to sting and catch the 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 men that were not uh, vigilant, the men who were a little bit not as quick witted and careful in terms of covering their lusts. But there's actually many more out there. And maybe even some of the ones in the prosecuting offices who are out I there mean, who I mean, aren't gone. So some of these men are 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 they're intelligent they're they're educated and so forth but it just they didn't it, it, they were caught at a, a a weak moment I mean I remember there was one case in Petersburg and he was a he was a librarian a Judaica librarian in a college and he he was on he was highly intelligent but he was on certain uh, psychotropic uh, medications. And the doctor changed his medication, and and he wound up uh, falling into into a case like this. And and his lawyer told him, "You're you're." And we talked about this before about the the problems with these uh, with these plea bargains. The lawyer told him, "You're you're going to be found guilty either way. So the best you can do is is you make a plea bargain. You're going to get 14 years. Otherwise, they're gonna they're gonna throw the book at you. Even though there was no pictures involved, there was no victim, but it." He described something very horrific that what actually the police officer was offering something very, very, very horrific, and he 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 said he expressed interest in in engaging in something like that, but it was at the time he it was he was out of his mind, and he he would like to withdraw his guilty plea because what happened was was that the the you know the the plea bargain was for 14 years and then the judge gave him 27 years. And he said he's not bound in any way by this plea bargain, similar to what we spoke about with Cosby. Bill Cosby, sure. And then, and then, uh, and then on uh, on appeal, the they said you know twenty seven years is too much for this, but he still had I think twenty one years. David, for, sounds for familiar. Never David, did. David, it sounds familiar. What you, the Rabitzchuk story, right? I'm sure. All of this, all of this is very familiar, and. Um, uh, I wanted to say too that one of the challenges is we're focusing on reentry for the sex offender, unlike the many of the other offenders, including white collars. The fact, particularly on the depiction cases, which are a, a, a very significant portion of sex offenses, is the use of a computer. So, as a practical matter, you're going into an office setting if you are, 
as a sex offender, it's going to be very difficult to to convince an employer to, with comfort, allow you to use a computer. Well, because- well I, here's another interesting part of the, the case. If he, because he, he his entire crime was committed on a computer, that's generally it's only a federal crime in these cases. If the if the offender crosses state lines, Correct. that's what usually makes it a federal case. Otherwise, Correct. a state case. Right. In this case, it, it took place in Florida. If he would have shown up and would have been in the same state, he probably would have been uh, it would would have been a state offense. And because he never showed up and he came to his senses and realized how stupid and crazy the things that he typed were in this chat room and, and, and totally regretted the whole thing. And it was, it was due to a, a, a mental lapse, a mental illness. Um, be, but because the entire incident was uh, on the internet, the internet is, uh, I guess, similar to mail, to postal services, it's considered a federal domain. And that's why he wound up in the federal prison. And it's the uh... it's, this is this is again part of the again we we look at the internet as being so uh, benign, and yet again the, the, not only what it tempts us, but then when we give in to the temptation, it actually sometimes seals our fate. Well, look, I think that we've uh, we've definitely talked about the issues here um, and 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 brought to light. Some I, of the some of the aspects here. It's I, you... I did I did want to mention something about what, what what David was asking about as far as reentry and getting jobs. Recently, I attended a conference and we did discuss this issue, and two things were brought up. One was that in general, because of what's going on today with the uh, with with the unemployment insurance uh, being offered. Uh, indefinitely uh, uh, that a lot of people are making more money sitting at home than working. Uh, this has been actually a, a boon for re-entrants who are looking for work because so many jobs are available. And and as far as even the sex offenders were able to find jobs generally in factory work. Uh, but again, there's that challenge that, that mention of the overqualified re-entrants who really are you know they're probably not looking for for this type of manual labor and things every and, now and then and I, i'm going to know. assume based on my own history you know when i was trying to find jobs people would say you're overqualified uh, you're not going to be happy and even if you know we don't even look at your past i'm sure many of the um you know take away their prejudices david i'm sure many of the the employers would say to people like yourself who had a law degree and say, look, you know, I can't give you this manual labor job. I know you're going to be frustrated with it. And, you know, if you're going to be frustrated with it and stop and quit in a month or two, I'm going to have to be out there on the street finding somebody else. So I think that it is a conundrum uh, about finding gainful employment and giving the person back his sense of self-worth. I think it's right. I think it's something very, very true. Very true. I mean, there's employment to be had, but as you say, gainful and satisfactory employment, a different matter. Right. And, and, and I know even though you did so much soul searching and, and you changed yourself and you, you came to a point where you recognize God's hands and in terms of commitment to religiosity and more involvement with your family, but even you yourself said that the stuff you do now, uh, fundraising and, 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 and helping this company, um, that you're with now, 
uh, right? I think, right? We're not fundraising, but I'm, I'm doing sales for the company. Sales, I mean, I'm manager. sorry. Right. Yeah. But I'm saying that's something that at least, you know, it, it stirs your intellect. It, it's something you feel that you're good at. Like you say, it would be hard for you to to pick up the the hammer and nail and 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 screwdriver and get it done. Yitzchok, you know, it looks like we have so much content here. We we, we weren't able to do our usual um, movie and 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 film. I know my wife said she had a movie she wanted to talk about. I think she went to bed already. Okay, you don't even know what it was though, right? <laughs> no, no, she didn't tell me. Okay. I could go see if she's still awake. No, no, but... I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out one thing which is available for free on mo- most streaming services. And it, 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 we've talked often about, uh, you know, reentry. We've talked about films like The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, I mentioned also um, uh, the Lord of uh, the Lord of Chicago uh, with Robert Montgomery, uh, a real great classic film with Edward Arnold. Uh, about I've mentioned them before about the difficulties of reentry. Uh, I saw something recently which I think also underscores that, and that's a um, it's the uh, season finale of the third uh, season of Columbo. Um, it's called A Friend Indeed. Um, and the plot is a, uh, deals with one of the most fiendish, horrible criminals that Columbo ever dealt with, which is his boss, a police commissioner. And the police commissioner lives a double life. He really looks askance against trying to help people. His wife is a millionaire, a balistadok, as we say in Hebrew, who's trying to promote programs for people who are uh, coming back into the community. She's trying to get jobs for ex-convicts. And the police commissioner himself thinks it's the most ridiculous thing that his wife is giving away money and he plots to kill her in in a real fiendish, real fiendish way. And this episode, it was made almost 50 years ago, but it really has such great compassion uh, for uh, prisoners who have who are coming back onto the street. Uh, I, I want to just mention that great character actor, Val Avery, who uh, appeared in so many w- wonderful spots in various films by Cassavetes and others. And uh, he plays this, this uh, fellow that the, um, that the police commissioner wants to frame. And... Um, it really brings out how, at least 50 years ago, um, there was almost an attitude that if you've been in prison, you're probably going to go back, and the only people you can hang out with are the people in Skid Row. And yet, what the this made-for-TV, 100-minute you know, movie, it used to be called, I think, the Mystery of the Week, the NBC Movie Mystery of the Week. It shows that there's more corruption in the upper echelons of, Be- of Beverly Hills and in the police force. And in a sense, there's more honesty among thieves than there is even in that, in that, in, in that high aristocratic place. So that's my um, uh, recommendation. It's always great to see Peter Falk as Columbo. I don't care. You know what I'm saying? He could just walk in with that raincoat. That's, that's already worth the price of admission. Anyway, I want to thank everybody. Yeah, even I, even I, when I, it's I, not I, raining. That's right. He's yeah. always wearing it. He's it, always it, wearing it. That, that made me think of an episode of uh, Growing Pains, because I know my daughter's here. She's a fan of, oh. of that sitcom. And uh, the, the, you know, the father... Uh, Adam, Dr. is that Adam Thick? Alan Thick. Alan yeah. Thick, yeah. Alan Thick. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so he's a psychologist and he goes and works in the free clinic. And his daughter, Carol, is kind of stuck up and and right. he wants to bring her there to to learn to have compassion for for these people that, that are, are are in need and so forth. And one of the uh 
and, and at one point she meets an African-American young man who was who a re-entrant and she starts uh, tutoring him and she's so impressed by his talent in, in poetry and in essay writing and so forth and and uh, she takes him out to, you know, to go discuss, uh, you know, all, all with the best intentions. They, they go to somewhere to have dinner so they can discuss his work in school. And, and one, you remember what happened? One, the, the owner of the restaurant said, you're the guy who mugged me all these years ago. And then he got into a fight and he got arrested again. And, and how depressed she was that, you know, he wasn't being given a second chance. And all the potential that this young man had and how it was wasted uh, because of, uh, you know, this, uh, the, the intolerance and, and the, you know, and she learned the lesson, you know, not to be, and, and the, you know, the challenge and then such a generally, you know, very upbeat and, uh, and uh, sitcom here, you had this challenge. No, of no you're right. The 80s, you this. You're yeah. right. The eighties was definitely trying to push the sitcom, uh, you know, beyond your typical yuck yucks, uh, trying to, um, you know, like, you know, trying to push things in a way to make a great social message. I think that what this Kalomo episode and what this episode of Growing Pains indicates is that despite the best intentions of Hollywood and some of the, the media and trying to, to, to create this message, when it com push comes to shove, when the message comes to your house, when it comes to the guy living next door, when it comes to the person in your shul, when it comes to the guy knocking on your door for employment, so all of a sudden, that, that sweet aspect, that, that ethical aspect, that human aspect, that understanding aspect, with some disappears. And once again, the old prejudices uh, encrust themselves, and the people are, <laughs> they're acting just like, as you said, just like those caricatures. And that's what I hope we're going to try to accomplish here. When we see these things, to somehow burst that bubble to be able to uh, expand and grow and and really be able to give back the love that people deserve in the safe and, and proper way, in a way that they get their humanity and their Tzalma Lukim. That's what I did, my friends, on this special extra-long episode. I want to thank everybody who's here with us tonight. Be well, everybody. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 